Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Worldview ends its 25-year run tomorrow. In recent weeks, we've been reminiscing, reflecting, and sharing some laughs with former producers. And we will talk with several today. Let's get started with Andrea Wenzel. Andrea Wenzel is now an assistant professor of journalism at Temple University's Klein College of Media and Communication. Great to have you, Andrea. It's a delight to be here with you, Jerome, even though I can't actually see you. But And uh, also in the studio with me is Nissa Ree, who uh, started at Worldview in 2004. She is executive director of the 90 Days, 90 Voices Project, documenting, immig- documenting migrant, refugee, and asylum seeker issues in Chicago. Great to see you, Nissa. Yeah. Hi, Jerome. Hi, Andrea. Um, Andrea, I wanted to ask, uh, first of all, about... Uh, the U of C pipeline, because like today's show, we're going to talk to several people who basically you funneled into the show through the through the University of Chicago, where you uh, were an alumni yourself. Um, uh, what happened there? Because I don't remember. <laughs> Very good question. Um, yeah, I think so. You guys let me in the door. And thanks to also to Edie Rabinowitz, who I think we'll hear from as well for, for doing that. Um, and we needed interns. And, you know, honestly, I probably at that time, very early in my career, it was my very first job, had no business having interns. But um, somehow we made that work. <laughs> and we had a regular rotation of people who not every time we had some great folks from other places, but we did have quite a few from University of Chicago. All right. Explain what you're doing now. You're a great big professor of journalism. <laughs> you got this splashy article in the Columbian Journalism Review that I was reading. That's that's cool. Thank you. Um, I'm definitely not splashy, but I am a, I'm an assistant professor at Temple University, and I do research and teach on engaged journalism and solutions journalism. The, the good things in journalism, the bad things in journalism, um, a lot of things I got inspired from being working with your show long ago. So it's um, it's been interesting to kind of cross over to the to the other side and, you know, be doing the academic things. But I think of you guys often. Now, now you wrote your master's thesis about worldview. Is that what it was? I sure did. <laughs> I sure did. Wow. I, was, <laughs> I was just thinking about that the other day from how come full circle I remember one of my favorite parts of that. So I, I looked, was looking at U.S. news coverage of global affairs and worldviews approach and then other, you know, approaches. And one somehow that led to us, um, once I was kind of there as an intern and then as a producer, we had this map of the world on our cubby um, wall that we would put pins in and kind of use it as a way of making sure the show tried to cover as much, you know, global ground as possible. (laughs) And I remember, you know, being like, no, we don't have enough pins right now in South America. You know, we need to do something about that. Or, oh, my gosh, there's like just a hole where, um, you know, Israel-Palestine is because we've done too much coverage there or whatever the case might be. We kind of use that as a way of of keeping track of things. So, so yeah, I I guess now that I think about it, I, I kind of started out with the wonky stuff, and then I left it, and then I've gotten sucked back into it. 
<laughs> well, you've come for a circle. We all do. Yes. Uh, and now, Nissa, tell us about your projects that you work on day. 90 Days, 90 Voices has been a breath of fresh air in the media landscape here. Oh, thank you, Jerome. Yeah, so I, I think really trace it back to my time on Worldview, too, because we I started 90 Days, 90 Voices oh, like two and a half years ago now, right after Trump signed the Muslim travel ban in 2017 with two other journalists here in Chicago. And the idea was really just to boost Chicago's coverage of immigrants and these kind of migration issues in light of all the stuff that was happening with the Trump administration. And it was meant to be a temporary project. And we all had full time other jobs. Uh, but it's grown and grown, and now we're an incorporated nonprofit, our own 501c3, and we just had a story co-published in the Chicago Reader yesterday and have been doing a lot of stories about asylum seekers in particular this year. What do you remember about working on Worldview, Ness? I remember when you were an intern and you were so good and you were making me do things uh, and, and, and keep snapping the – cracking the whip, keeping me in line. It was awesome. <laughs> That's so funny because I remember when – so when I was an intern, I was still in college at University of Chicago, of course. And uh, I was – it was only after my sophomore year there. So I was like pretty young still and I had knew nothing about radio. Um, but what I remember was Dave really being so patient, Dave McGuire being so patient with me, teaching me everything he knew about radio from editing to how sound works, all the nitty gritty stuff, you know, how to put together uh, a radio interview piece. And um, I was so indebted to him because I felt like, you know, I knew a lot how to research and write from uh, school. But, you know, that kind of aspect, I had no idea um, so when I came back as a producer, then when I was hired as a producer after I graduated, I was able to jump right in. Yeah, that was great. I really uh, was so happy to have you. Thanks. <laughs> it was because I was like, oh, who can we get to fill in? I don't know. Andrea, you were leaving town again. You were going to somewhere, I think, and we needed somebody. Yeah. And I was like, gosh, let's get Nissa. What, what did, Andrea, explain what you did, because you kept leaving the show and coming back <laughs> and going places. What, what did you do? Well, you know, you do this show about the world, and sometimes people want to go look at the world. So <laughs> I, um, I had a great opportunity to, to take two leaves of absence. The first one was to go and on a Fulbright teeth in Ghana, um, where I taught, and then I also randomly made a movie there. Um, but then I came back. <laughs> what was the name and, of that female superhero? Yes, it was a female superhero movie called Madam Pink. Mm, um, yeah. She fought uh, domestic violence and things. Yes, she With did. Martial she, arts, right? Yes. <laughs> she had superpowers and happened to know martial arts. And uh, That film was know, way ahead of its time. <laughs> it was. It was. I, it's kind of, you know, Me Too meets Black Panther. It's, it was, it, yeah, it definitely was out of its time and definitely I was way out of my depths in making this. <laughs> I only saw the mic boom a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we did okay for me paying for it out of my Fulbright money, so. <laughs> All right. And then the other time you went to where? I went to Sri Lanka, and that was when the Civil War was still going on. And we, for that one, I was working with Internews, and our goal was to set up media houses where we brought together journalists from the Tamil, Sinhalese, and Muslim um, communities and had them do reporting together and trying to, you know, see how we could do 
reporting a difficult situation um, and including some more like solutions oriented reporting as well. So that was, that was great. That was very challenging. <laughs> and then I, I came back from that. So. And, and then you, after you spent a little more time with us, uh, you went to Afghanistan? Yeah, I went to work with BBC Media Action. Um, and I worked with a program there where they, I was first brought in to train Afghan women on a, a, you know, a radio program. And then we did the, I ended up working with their kind of broader portfolio things, which included as a highlight working with um, a radio soap opera there that's been running for, I think, more than 25 years now. Um, and does looks at kind of lots of different serious issues, you know, like educating girls, um, health issues, but it does it through an entertaining lens and so much so that people would, you know, send in presents when characters on the show got married. So it was a really remarkable experience to be able to do that. Were you able to work a female superhero into that, uh, soap opera at all? No, there was some magical realism, but fortunately, they knew better than to let me mess around with any of the scripts. This was all in Dari and Pashtu and local languages, and it was all Afghan-led in terms of the, the programming and the writing and everything else. Andrea Wenzel is a professor at Temple University. Nissa Ree is the executive director of 90 Days, 90 Voices, and we're reminiscing about their time producing Worldview. The program ends tomorrow, and I wanted to bring up the Global Activism Series. Um, Andrea, what was the idea behind the Global Activism Series? You were the one who started this thing. I think basically I was very depressed doing this show where every day we were so often talking about depressing things in the world, you know, genocide, war, everything else. And I, I wanted to, you know, I was frustrated with that. And then I stumbled across, um, I don't actually remember how I met him, but a guy named Gordon Mulea, who was um, a taxi driver originally from Zambia, and he was sending medical supplies back to Zambia. Um, and I, you know, started talking to him. I was going to, I was interviewing him, and I was going to have him do like a personal story about his experience. And he ended up, you know, sharing that the reason he was doing this is because his daughter had died in that same hospital he was sending um, supplies to because there weren't. Like she had meningitis and they didn't have the proper medicines. And so his, you know, goal was to make sure no other parent had to go through that. And so it was this really kind of moving story and we, we broadcast it and it got a really helpful response. And a lot of people got involved in, in helping him out and was like, this is great. <laughs> you know, why can't we do this more often? And I think um, we tried for a little while to do them as a weekly, um, with like feature stories where the people would kind of tell their own story and we'd have sound and everything else. And that was, that was, that was a lot of work, frankly. <laughs> and we, uh, <laughs> so it, it transitioned from that to being more interviews and, and, and then you guys kind of just kept going with it after I left. And it, it, it just, it's one of the, you know, I think I look back on that very fondly and I, do research now on solutions journalism. Um, and I often think about how what the Global Activism Series has done is kind of a precursor to that in a lot of ways because, you know, it, it was doing some really great work. And Nissa, you took over running the series back in the heyday of the Global Activism Expos and things and got to see it uh, 
blossom in a way. Yeah, the expos were amazing. I still remember, you know, I I think I saw at least two and it grew so big and so many people from all over the city, even suburbs, came out to meet all these people who have been featured on the show. And there was such a great energy at a time when there was a lot of dark politics going on to see all the people doing good in the world. It was really uplifting. Um, Yeah, I think that's our best legacy. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty great. Um, it is. And um, uh, Andrea, you did a lot of crazy things, I got to say. <laughs> um, explain, you like did this road trip one time and you were you were looking for, um, you know, Jesse Helms or something. What, what were you doing? I, you know, frankly, I'm not sure why anyone let me do this because <laughs> I was like fresh out of college and didn't know what I was doing in terms of like, I didn't, I was not you know, trained at producing a radio documentary. And yet somehow, I think, um, you know, Tori Malatia, the former leader there, you know, took it upon his good grace and you get let me take some time to go do this. And I drove around the U.S. um, trying to find out more about the John Birch Society and the people who were against the U.N. And this was um, before 9-11. And so, you know, at the time... It was just kind of this like wacky, you know, thing of people who wanted to pull the U.S. out of the U.N. And so we ended up in, you know, going around to where Jesse Helms was from and talking to people there and then going to D.C. and trying to find him and talking to one of his aides who must have been very confused about why this like 21 year old was doing this. (laughs) And then um, going to the U.N. and talking to people there. So it was it was a pretty strange documentary. And I I would like to find it someday, but it's probably in my parents' basement rotting where it probably belongs. <laughs> but I think we, we the best part of it was is I remember we made it a fourth of July special. <laughs> Absolutely. That's total worldview style. I stayed up all night the night before that editing it and I remember <laughs> Yes. I remember the fireworks were going on and I was trying to put music underneath it. It's very <laughs> surreal. Um, Nissa, I remember a trip that we took to um, to Michoacan, and we went to Morelia. And mm-hmm. I mean, it's it has it resonates a lot to with your work with Ninety Days, Ninety Voices these days. Yeah, that was an amazing trip. You and I and Alexander Solomon um, went to Mexico, and we were talking to reverse migrants, so people from Mexico who had come to Chicago and then gone back to Mexico, and it was really cool way to just to explore that area and to meet people who had such strong ties to both Chicago and that area. Uh, and I remember we were um, having lunch at a restaurant on the square and it was a kind of, you know, nice restaurant on the square. And the um, waiter said, oh, hi, you know, my dad worked at WVON as a broadcast engineer for 30 years. <laughs> and I, and, you know, I'm, I decided I liked life down here better and I've come back down here. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we started doing shout outs to people. You know, we would just say, hey, do you know anybody in Chicago to these people in Morelia? And everybody knew somebody in Chicago and they would just say hi to them. Yeah. Yeah. That was a fun trip. Well, um, it's been fun working with you two. Um, Andrea Wenzel is a Worldview producer from 1998 to 2008. She is now assistant professor of journalism at Temple University. 
Nisseri started at Worldview as an intern in 2004, as a producer in 2006, and she is now executive uh, pr- director of the 90 Days, 90 Voices project documenting migrant, refugee, and asylum seekers in Chicago. You can visit the website and check out more on the 90 Days, 90 Voices project. It's great talking with you both. I'm sorry we don't have more time. I'll talk to you both soon. Congratulations, Jerome. Thank you. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Dave McGuire, and for the last time, Breeze Lutke Stallman. Beginning Monday, I'm going to call her Breeze Richardson. And so uh, watch me doing the credits here and see how many times I mess that up in the next few weeks. But uh, we'll be talking about Breeze Richardson producing Worldview uh, for the next uh, few weeks or so after this. And thanks to Harold Britton for engineering today. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you've been listening to Worldview from Chicago Public Radio. That's me back in 2005, trying to remember to call Breeze Richardson, Breeze Richardson, on the air after she got married. Breeze is now the Director of Marketing and Communications at the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art in Kansas City. It is great to talk with you, Breeze. Thanks, Jerome. It's so nice to hear your voice. Um, t- uh, w- uh, what have you been doing? <laughs> you're, you're, you, you and your husband moved back to Kansas City, where, where, um, back to Kansas, where you guys came from. That's right. So um, I had left Lawrence, Kansas in 2002 to come to the University of Chicago uh, and study at the Harris School of Public Policy. Um, and that led me to WBEZ, where I uh, started on Worldview, but then stayed until 2013, um, when my then-husband, uh, Kelsey, and I, and we had two boys, um, moved back to Kansas. And I worked in government for a while, and then uh, have been here at the Contemporary Art Museum for the last two years, really doing the same thing, telling stories and providing access to community to talk about important issues of the day. Um, and now I get to do it in the context of a free contemporary art museum in a pretty classic urban Midwest environment. Uh, Breeze, you know, it was, it's interesting. The digital age has, you know, brought a lot of things. And you were the first person I knew who um, was playing the, those um, uh, Final Fantasy, I believe it was, was your game. And <laughs> That's you, right. you were involved in this multiplayer game and you were deeply involved in it. You had a little character and you're playing with people all over and um, the people in the game were sending you wedding presents and stuff. You had become friends with all these people in the game. And this was the first person I ever knew who had this kind of relationship uh, with people. And we started doing stories about that. That's absolutely right. You know, uh, grad school had been grueling. Uh, I was also a full-time activist. And uh, when I finally settled down um, and was done with school and was, uh, you know, just working a nine-to-five like a normal person, I started playing Final Fantasy XI and I did. I, I connected with people really all over the world and um, became good friends with people. And it was just a really interesting way to kind of explore um, community, definitely, in a, in a different way, but go on quests and uh, and explore things. And um, I remember when we – I got really obsessed with, with Bitcoin or uh, gill farmers, rather, like this – currency that you used in the game, um, which you'd spend a lot of time like working to earn, people would sell on the like 
proverbial black market. And so there were these farms, these factories, um, predominantly in China, where people would would um, and I thought it was so unfair, and that we needed to do a story about it. So we did. We like found someone to talk to about this whole underground economy of people who earned real money farming for fake money for then people people largely in in the Western world to to cheat and purchase instead of earning it for themselves. It's still every bit as creepy today as it was then. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, I remember we also did a story about. Um, the uh, in Korea, the first court case where that came into a legitimate court uh, about somebody's coins in a game that they were playing, and they got stolen virtually in the game, and they they had decided to hear this court case and um, start litigating the virtual world. Your memory is so good, you know, and I think this uh, really shows how worldview as a community of producers um, and our interests and our how our lives intersected, you know, really played out in the show. Um, you know, things we were interested in, things that were we were following in the news. You know, ultimately, so many of them, I think, from all of our walks of life, like made it onto the show as things that we thought other people would be interested in and want to hear about and talk about. Uh, and we had the whole globe to to kind of. Um, look for those stories. So, you know, there was no two days that have ever been the same on your show. Uh, Breeze, you were the person who kind of took the global activism segment and blew it up into the expo when you moved to the marketing department. And and we had an in there. That was exciting. That was exciting. You know, it was something we had talked about when I was um, interning on the show and supporting that segment and then went on to produce that segment each week, that we had this really unique opportunity to meet these people, these real life people, and not only share their stories with listeners on the air, but um, become friends with them and invite them back and hear about, uh, you know, as their organizations would grow, hear those stories. And when I went over to the marketing side of things and I had an opportunity to think about what live events WBEZ should create, it was just natural for me to think the global activism segment should really grow grow into the global activism expo. And at its height, we had um, over 5,000 people coming together on a single day to walk around a large expo center type space and go from table to table to table and meet these incredible individuals and hear about their organizations and really shop for the right volunteer opportunity to get involved however it fit for you wherever you were at at that point in your life. And this was, you know, not a normal marketing lift. It was a strange thing to like say, we need uh, 150 tables and we need, you know, outlets. And uh, it was, it was a strange thing to do. Yeah, and you guys really um, collaborated with me on that. I mean, I, it wouldn't have ever happened if not for the, you know, kind of back end of things of keeping in touch with all these people and the whole, you know, database side of things of being able to um, organize that many different individuals who are often traveling at any given time um, to 
far-flung parts of the world, and I think it really spoke to their organizational strengths, the volunteers that worked with them that would, you know, raise their hand and say, absolutely, I'll staff a table at that event because I'd love to, you know, have the opportunity to expose more people to this organization. And I'm still hooked in with all those people, Breeze. I'm going to the Women's Global Education (sighs) Project event in uh, a week from Monday, and, uh, you know, I'm seeing them all the time. Oh, that's so great. Um, what else do you remember about doing the show? Well, you know, it's been really fun to think about this opportunity to speak with you and think about those days, which were a long, long time ago. But, you know, um, I think what I remember most is that working on Worldview was my first like real job. And I was a kid who went straight from high school into college, straight from college into graduate school. And so... When I came on to Worldview in 2004, um, it really set the tone for me of what a workplace should be like, what a work, what work life family um, should feel like. Um, as I've gone on to have staff of my own and mentor countless interns and really create what it looks like to have a workplace and a workplace culture, I think uh, so much about what was you know influenced for me in my life, um, professionally and personally because of worldview. You know, I used to love us going out to lunch. Um, As a Kansas kid, I had not been exposed to half of the ethnic cuisines that I had the opportunity to go explore with you guys. I feel like there was a year where we had some around the world challenge and we're like seeking out every corner of Chicago to go out and eat. And um, Indian food is still like a staple in my family, uh, which was I was very much introduced to. Uh, by going to the, the buffets downtown with you guys. Yeah, we're going uh, to one tomorrow night. <laughs> see, that's awesome. And I'm happy to say that, you know, when we returned to Kansas, uh, whatever that was, 13 years later, there's a lot more ethnic cuisine um, here in the region than there was when I left. So I feel like we got to bring a lot of those new found love uh, for food back home and get to keep eating that stuff. One more thing, Breeze. I remember you liked the map a lot. Where We were talking before about we would put a pin in the map every day to, to kind of make sure we were moving the moving the ball around so that everybody got a chance in the worldview. And you really formalized it, went for colors, you had data, you you went you went all, all in on it. You know, that. I did. I absolutely did. I think you have to blame the Harris School of Public Policy for that. I, I knew think that was Having coming. me come right out of grad school, um, I was. But I I think it goes both ways because I don't think people stop um, and have the opportunity to think enough about what goes into producing a show like Worldview and the willingness of you and Steve and Dave to like listen to my pie chart created analysis every month about the proportion of women that we had on the air and what we could do to increase that number and what parts of the world we were talking about and how we could be equitable in the parts of the world that we were um, giving coverage to, you know, I think really underscores just how much it was a team and how systems like that, you know, help you stay accountable even to your own goals. Um, well, right on, Breeze. That was uh, terrific. And it's, I'm, uh, you know, I'm sorry we're not in touch more. I, I'm so glad I could talk with you. Me too. And my phone's blowing up. People are texting me saying that they're hearing me live on the radio right now. So uh, thank you for reconnecting me to Chicago. And let's absolutely stay in touch. Breeze, uh, Co- Breeze Richardson co-produced Worldview from 2003 to 2005 and is now in Kansas City as Director of Marketing and Communications with the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art. 
So uh, that's uh, terrific to talk with Breeze Richardson. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk with uh, producer number three, Edie Rabinowitz, who is also a professor of journalism. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald, talking with former producers and reminiscing about the show. The show ends tomorrow. With me is producer number two, Edie <laughs> Rabinowitz. Uh, there was Gretchen, then there was Edie, then I started, then then I started losing track. But uh, Andrew, it's great to see she? Andrew. Yeah. Andrew yeah. is number three. Uh, great to see you, Edie. Oh, it's great to be here, Jerome. And tell people what you're doing now. Uh, I'm a, People will remember you were a reporter at one time. Here. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've become a professor over at Northeastern Illinois University, and I'm the journalism professor over there. But I mean, the journalism professor. That's that's all we got. So you're the best. I'm the only. <laughs> By default, I'm the best. But it's a it's a great place. So uh, now, what do you remember about working the show? It was pretty a long time ago. Yeah, I think it was ninety seven to ninety eight. Um, and I just remember every day it was something new, Jerome. I mean, it was really, really exciting. I think I met seven or eight Nobel Peace Prize winners, you know. In just a couple of years. And I think it was just, yeah, a little bit over a year. Yeah. So it was fascinating. And it kind of set me up for the rest of my life in terms of international affairs. How so? Well, right after I did this, I went and I did what is what was called the Pew International Fellowship. And I went to Panama, and I went to Guyana. And with Panama, I used, or I talked with one of the sources before I went down there that I learned about through Worldview that I think we had had on during that period, Gustavo Garidi, who's an investigative reporter. He's a legendary journalist. Okay, tell us a little bit about him. I'm... Uh, he was basically responsible for all the information that ousted Alberto Fujimori from Peru. And he had to flee the country because he revealed all the drug dealings of his um, CIA-type director in in there, and he fled to Panama and right. started journalisming in Panama and got in trouble there too. Yeah, that's when that's when I got to meet him. He was taking on President. It was Bayadares at the time, and I was working on a piece about the gag laws in Panama uh, that anybody who criticized Bayadares could be taken to court. And um, I'm sure that could never happen in this country. <laughs> Back back then, it couldn't have. <laughs> so, but, you know, and I talk with my students a lot about they actually issued um, licenses for journalists to practice. And we talk about what's the problem with that. So That's cool. Yeah. Um, wh- what do you remember about – I'll tell you my overriding impression no, no. of us doing okay. this together. Yes. Was we were too much alike. Oh, and okay. we were we didn't care in height, about you mean yeah <laughs> not at all in height <laughs> but it, we didn't care about the deadline like we were willing to wait until the very last second to to get the right guest and stuff we were uh, we were so like well what do you want yeah we were, you know, let's do the you want to do the best thing so we're gonna we're gonna wait forever and we almost we almost crashed the show a lot. Really? Okay. That's, how, that's my overriding memory. Okay. Edie, we're too much alike. Okay. Well, I do remember making a lot of calls on the morning of 
<laughs> you know, we would read the paper. I mean, we wanted to be current. So we would, you know, read the paper. You'd read it on the train in from Arlington Heights, you know, six or yeah. seven of them, Financial Times. We would be totally updated. And then we had like three or four calls. We had a couple things figured out in advance, but we always knew that the top segment we wanted to have as current as possible and we wanted to get the exact right person. And that was the other thing that was amazing is we could get the exact right person because you had this incredibly thick Rolodex, although they don't call it a Rolodex anymore. This was like pre-computer era, yeah. pre Yeah, there was a big a binder full of guests there were. One of the things I remember is you giving Jose Ramos Horta the uh, Nobel Peace Prize winner from East Timor a ride to the train or something. A ride to his hotel. And there he told me something that ended up becoming a This American Life story, too. I kidnapped a torture. All of these are problems Heck four. that people face. Noble calling. And that's what has to be this is Jose Ramos Horta on an international news program called Worldview. It's broadcast on Chicago's public radio station. Horta is in exile from his homeland in East Timor. He spent two decades as the leading international figure denouncing the invasion of his country by Indonesia. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1996 for his efforts to hinder the oppression of a small people. But before his appearance on this radio program, Worldview, he confided in producer Edie Rabinowitz that someday... If peace comes to his country, he has another dream. He would like to do a radio program himself, one like Howard Stern's. He'd seen Stern's movie, Private Parts, on an airplane. We reached Horta at the United Nations offices in Geneva. That's the kind of radio program I would do in Timor one day. I Probably they would cut me off the air. <laughs> but but uh, his approach, you know, uh, is really, you know, hilarious. Malarkey. No, he he didn't. Oh, he really? told me he listened to Howard Stern, and so <laughs> they did a, kind of a wacky show on, on on him listening to Howard Stern and played in pieces of Howard Stern. And at the time, he was the he was the um, representative from East Timor to the United Nations, and so had to be very diplomatic all the time. And so Howard Stern, I guess, led his other side out. But he was an amazing. You gave him a full hour, yep. right? And just, you know, battling for freedom in East Timor. He got to talk about all sorts of things. It was really an amazing experience. Yeah, and he was, he was an amazing thinker and uh, quite a guy. Um, what else do you remember? Um, let's see. I, I do remember, I mean, now that you bring up the crashing into, I remember being slightly panicked as you would come in <laughs> and it would be right before the BBC played at the top of the hour on the show and you'd be just drifting in like it was nothing major. So, um, and, you know, and you always made your mark and got on in time, but that was, a, that was a little scary. And then I also remember you being generous enough to let me host for a week um, and I got, I did a lot of book interviews during that time. I think I got to interview Amy Goodman. And so it was, it was a great experience. So you, you mentored us sufficiently so we could fill your shoes, but only for five days at a time. Uh, is there any greater lesson that you think Chicago has gotten out of worldview? Um, I think that international news matters and that it actually matters locally. Um, and I think that's what the show was pretty amazing at doing. Um, and one of the things that I thought really represented that, and I think it was Andrea Wenzel's idea of this Global Activism Expo and yep. Global Activism Thursdays and the idea that there were many people in Chicago who really cared deeply about international events and were willing to volunteer and use their their um, non-working hours to 
to build something, to kind of build a movement around issues that they were passionate about. And in addition to the hard news that you were updating, you were also bringing these folks in on a regular basis. And I think you formed a real community around doing good on international affairs locally. All right. Um, we recently celebrated the life of Milos Stalik in the program. And w- do you have a Milos story you'd like to share? I have a Milos story. Um, we were recording Roberto Benini and trying to do – this is a crashing story as well. The Italian director and star who was very big. Life is Beautiful, right, which is about the – you know, oddly enough, kind of a humorous film with edges about the Holocaust. And he was speaking uh, downtown. Um, I can't remember which Jewish group, but it was, it was fairly large. And he was um, running very late and his PR person – didn't want to give us very much time. And we had an exact hold to fill on the show. It had to be so much time. So in the middle of the interview, she cuts us off. And we're panicking because we knew that we had to get it on the air within like an 45 minutes or something. I had to get it over to you and take a cab and get it back. This was when it was probably mini disc and, you know, all nice. contained. So there was no kind of live feed from uh, this hotel. And so she cut us off. We knew we didn't have enough time, and we were panicking. And then Roberto Benini said, kind of held a hand to her, and then he said, why don't, Milos, why don't you ask that question again so I can answer it? Because he knew it would be easy to edit that way. And so Milos jumped in, did it the total pro that he was. Uh, and then later I had had my car towed <laughs> as we were coming out of the hotel. And... Um, and Milos, you know, took me down and we got our car back. So hero twice in that day, Milos. These are the best days of your life, weren't they? <laughs> they actually were, Joan. <laughs> and it's the rest of the life was pretty good. But these were really fun days. These were really fun days. And then they put me in good stead. I went to the Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And um, everybody was shocked by my knowledge. You know, maybe it's part because they were from other countries. But we went to the Peruvian ambassador's house, right, in Washington, D.C. And I... We got to ask some questions, and I asked about Laurie Berenson, who was an activist who had been imprisoned there for her connection to a revolutionary group. And nobody else knew who Laurie Berenson was. Now, granted, these were people from, you know, from India, from Israel, from Kurdistan, Iraqi, you know, Kurdistan. But they were all impressed, and they said, where did you learn that? And I said, worldview. Edie, you brought your son and his friend. Can we bring him? Can yeah, we bring him on, on to say Let's it? Let's do it. Okay. My son is. I'm going to shout out. Although I guess I don't have to shout if he's right here. My son is Max Fouts. Can you say hi, buddy? Hi. No regular voice. <laughs> regular voice, kiddo. Hi. He's nine. If that helps. Hi. And then uh, Griff Walker. You want to say hi too? Hi. Great. You want to hear what they've been practicing? Yeah. Let's hear it. Okay. Come in closer to the mic, guys. Congratulations on a great run. Thank you. Yay. Nice to, nice to have, a, have you guys on. Thank you very much, Edie Rabinowitz, professor at Northeastern University and producer number two around here. <laughs> producer number two. It makes me sound like bachelorette number two. Thank you, Jerome. It was a tremendous honor to produce the show, transformative experience, and it's an honor to be here today. <laughs> Coming up after the break, we'll continue our producer fest and talk with Jonah Meadows. He's now the North Shore editor for Patch.com. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Worldview ends its 25-year run tomorrow, and today we're talking with some of the people who made the program great, the producers, and Jonah Meadows is here. He is now North Shore editor for Patch.com, and Jonah was a producer from 2006 to 2009. Great to see you, Jonah. Great to see you, Jerome. Jonah, the thing I remember about you is you loved everything. You, like usually somebody likes some doing something more than another, but you loved everything, even the promos, which most people think is a terrible task. I would write this piece of slop copy and then just bring it in to you because I knew you'd fix it. And uh, there was just, you know, you loved the pledge drives. You were, I remember you um, playing the, playing uh, clips of Edward R. Murrow during the pledge drives. And uh, you loved the serious satellite system that we were on and trying to find out if people were listening. You were sending people books. Are you, you were still, on, book are you still on satellite radio? No. <laughs> satellite radio still a thing? <laughs> I <am> not, <laughs> but you loved it all, Jonah. It was so yeah, great to have you. Well, you know, it was really your style that was so inspiring because I think of you as like it's rare to to see in the in the media somebody who's like a – a real renaissance man and like a like an encyclopedia you know you could you could ask about a, a country or a period uh an event and uh you would have this like backlog of knowledge this that you just right at your fingertips and uh, i've never worked with anyone like that since who has such like a diverse range of knowledge and uh it was it, that, that, that was what was so inspiring, really, about working here. Um, well, you, you brought so many interesting things to the show. Um, you, had a, you had a thing for origin stories of faith groups and um, apocalypse. And we, we did a series on uh, apocalyptic— The end of the world. End of the world. And um, it was made into a book. Some folks called us up and uh, made this into a book. Uh, they included it in their kind of arty book. Uh, Front Forty Press was an arty, is an arty label, and a great big coffee table book. And they put uh, signs of the apocalypse or rapture. And they did our, they they did a verbatim transcript of our our thing that we did. That was that was very weird. Not definitely not what uh, I was expecting putting that putting that series together. Um, but uh, that. That was a, a an interesting time because it was um, sort of the the final years of the second Bush administration. Um, it was the final. Um, well, it was it was deep into the Iraq War. It was the surge. Uh, there was um, a lot of lot of stuff going on at that in that period that um, I think maybe we're still feeling some reverberations of and. Uh, I think there was there was also um, a mood in the air leading up to the end of the Mayan calendar too. I think that might have also oh, been yeah, an inspiration. That, the Mayan the, calendar was a big yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, now, you um, one of the other things you did was we decided to call this guy um, who you we there were people flying airplanes and using GPS coordinates and putting little mini cameras on them along the border of Mexico and the United States. And they wanted to catch um, the people who were crossing the border. And you decided we should call one of these guys and talk to talk to him about what he's doing down there. And so um, we pulled a clip of that. And this is uh, Glenn Spencer talking about his border drones. Searching for people with an airplane is that you've got to know where to look. 
And you have to keep that circle of search as small as possible because, you know, they're, they're very elusive. They don't want to be found. You see, the other people who are trying to get into the United States, these are sentient beings, and they come up with strategies to defeat these systems. Do you think there's other groups out there who are going to do what your group did and, you know, decide to have some kind of surveillance over some kind of area? Um, some people are worried about uh, groups that are uh, terrorist in nature, that they could use unmanned aerial vehicles in the future and to nefarious means. Does it ever well, strike you? Well, it's certainly possible. You know, we're, we're well aware of, uh, you know, uh, we're familiar with how these systems work. And yes, you could launch one of these things into the sky, uh, give it a, a GPS coordinate to go to, and run right into the ground. You could do that. We're promoting the, uh, the use of these things, but we're going to be very honest about it. Now, they have to have some level of sophistication. They have to have uh, people working together in a coordinated way who are pretty bright. And that is generally not the profile of the guys who are blowing things up. Well, there you go. That was uh, Glenn Spencer doing his own Border Patrol, um, one of the voices that uh, uh, we brought to you on Worldview. And uh, Jonah Meadows had that that idea. Blast from the past. Ten years later, look what happens in Saudi Arabia uh, with some drones. Yeah, we got it going on all the time. Um, so here, Jonah, what else do you remember about doing the show? What was fun for you? Uh, well, I remember uh, Andrea uh, when I first started really uh, showing me the ropes and uh, teaching me how to put together the show and sort of the workflow of the show. And um, that was the one um, – one remodel before the most recent remodel of the station and you and Steve and Andrea were working in this tiny closet uh, <laughs> like next to the CD archive room uh, in, in extremely cramped quarters. There was no room for any intern in there. Uh, but Yeah, we, 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 I just saw pictures of it for the first time in years, but we were during a uh, remodeling. We, there were four of us piled in a teeny little room. We tried to make it as fun as possible. Yeah, it definitely was a, a little bit of a, a party cubby in there. Um, and uh, I remember the the sort of the, the start of the global activism um, series and uh, working um, as and seeing seeing Nissa really take the lead on that and watching Breeze grow it into this expo and become uh, its own community and really take on a life of its own. And that's I think something that's going to live on past. The, the end of this, this quarter century of, of worldview. Yep, me too. Um, what about, uh, I remember you were very far ahead of the game on chemicals, and we did a lot of things about uh, chemicals, VHA, BH, uh, the, the things that were in our, all our, our drinking um, containers and everything. Microplastics. Microplastics. And, yeah. You were all over that stuff. Yeah, it's... It, the environment, I think, is one of the the subjects that lends itself to worldviews um, mission because it it is a, a global thing. It, it 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 disproportionately impacts the the marginalized communities and all, everywhere that it that there are environmental issues, you'll find that. And it also um, doesn't get the attention that it deserves in uh, conventional media. I mean, you look. Last week, I believe, there was more climate coverage than there had been in the last three or four years when you look at uh, broadcast and print media. And and so I think worldview is really filling in a hole when it came to 
um, environmental coverage and climate coverage. And uh, I hope to see more of that from you. We're talking with former producers of Worldview. Jonah Meadows is now North Shore editor for Patch.com. And um, one of the things we were chatting about before the break is the unusual journalism landscape. And um, you are covering the North Shore, one of the um, most wealthy communities in North America. And there's, but there's not a lot of people doing it. There's an ever decreasing number of people doing it. And I think that's one of the things that's really uh, changing in the media landscape. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that's why also public media is different and special and something that, you know, the listeners have a chance to make sure that it doesn't go away. And the listeners have a chance to be a part of it. And that's, I mean, worldview and its relationship with its listeners, whether they're um, driving a taxi around Chicago, whether they're living out in the suburbs, um, whether they're new to Chicago, whether they've been here for generations, like it has, it, it is a truly public program. It has been a public program on a public media station. And I think that uh, even in the last in the last ten years, you look at the rise of social media and the collapse of um, uh, regional newspapers and uh, the the kind of layoffs that you've seen at a lot of different media companies. Public media has been able to survive because it has the support of dedicated listeners, and they're. I mean, I guess this isn't a pledge drive, really, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're getting there, man. But I think that's that's why Worldview has been able to exist yeah. for 25 oh, yeah. years. It There's wouldn't no exist question. on a commercial station. There's no way. There's no question about that. But to have 25 years of this sort of relationship with the community, to build these connections with the Chicago land community, the global community in Chicago, to make the global connections for people living in Chicago – there's only one place, there's only one venue really where that, that can happen. You know, one of the things you mentioned um, in um, chatting was also the collapse of trust in government that we've seen, I mean, just in the last 10 years. And I happen to be reading uh, the Peter Beinert piece that's in The Atlantic about uh, measles, you know, what it says about our country. And he quoted um, some statistics that I really did find startling that um, – in the 1960s, when everybody was getting their vaccination, 77% of people said they trusted government to do the right thing. Now it's under 20% of people trust the government to do the right thing. And we've got a measles outbreak, um, you know, out the wazoo. So it's um, – I think that's um, something that kind of slips our mind sometimes, how far down uh, trust in government has gone. I think a lesson that I – came away with in the experience of working here and and maybe it took me a while to fully internalize it is that uh, there's a, a, a conventional wisdom that uh, it, it's incompetence is more likely than malfeasance and the more interaction you have with government, I think the more you can realize that that's a, a, the truism and uh, something and, – and I so – I think when you talk about trust in government, people too often assume malfeasance and that has, that has spread and this, this um, feeling that the, the media is conspiring, the government is conspiring the, you know, to, to cover things up, to do this and that. Really, the more you interact with it, the more you realize they're just not really very good at doing their jobs. 
Jonah Meadows is uh, now the North Shore editor for Patch.com. He was Worldview producer from 2006 to 2009. Thanks for joining us and talking about producing Worldview all these years. Tomorrow's the last show. We're going to have Jeffrey Winters on from Northwestern, somebody I've talked to for all 25 years of the show. We're going to talk about Indonesia, income inequality, and what we've learned over the last 25 years. Hope you can join us. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Worldview.